Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas, everyone. Today's episode is a cracker. We have Dr. Sandy Hilton co-hosting with us today. If you don't know who she is, she has done a whole bunch of episodes in the past. Um, But we also have Dr. Melissa Farmer today. Melissa is an assistant professor in the physiology department of the Northwestern University School of Medicine in Chicago. She's a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist. She loves the study of pain, loves to decipher unexplained pain, as well as the emotions that underlie the chronic pain experience. So today we are talking about what's normal about intimacy. How do we talk about pain with sex or pain with intimacy when we don't really have um, definitions or ideas surrounding what actually is normal. So we have a great discussion today um, about the different um, pain mechanisms involved with pelvic pain, particularly surrounding intimacy. And Melissa talks about pain as an emotional memory. So it's a really good podcast. It's a little bit long, but it's so hard sometimes to chop a lot of things out and you know I don't know if you know me but we tend to talk for a really long time um, anyway I hope you guys like it Merry Christmas and we've got a really good one for the new year so stay tuned okay welcome everybody to the pelvic health podcast see I was gonna say it and I did <laughs> I have a co-host today her name is Sandy Hilton in case you haven't listened to any of the other 10 or 20 podcasts that have been done before. Sandy has been on a numerous numerous podcasts and now she is co-hosting today. Hi Sandy. Hi Lori, I'm really happy I got to be here. Thanks. Now, she's got a friend with her from Chicago who I'm really excited to interview today. So her name is Melissa Farmer. Um, and I'm going to let Melissa give us a really good background about cuz she's got a really interesting background. So I will let her take it away, but thank you so much Melissa for coming on the podcast. So this all started um with sex. Nice. Uh, it started yeah, yeah, as things do. As things do. Um, not just conception, but uh, in undergrad, I uh, was um, interested in research, and fortunately, at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, they had a um, a world-renowned um, female sexual psychophysiology expert, Cindy Meston, and so that's sort of how I fell in love with research. Uh, and we would essentially, you know, show women erotic videos. Uh, while we measured their genital arousal responses and tried to sort of figure out the mind-body interactions. Uh, And, you know, I worked with women with PTSD and childhood sexual, uh, you know, traumas in their backgrounds. And I just fell in love with research, like every single itsy-bitsy bit of it. And uh, I thought I'd be an expert in female sexual health. And so the only thing I didn't know about, you know, we did arousal, desire, orgasm. We just didn't do anything about pain. So I uh, decided to um, go to McGill University uh, to work with Irv Binnick, 
who's the North American uh, expert on uh, dyspronia vaginismus. Uh, he helped to, actually, the DSM-5 revisions uh, that created this genital pelvic pain penetration disorder, that was his uh, his doing, um, because for many years he's been wondering, like, why is pain sexual? It's just pain. Um and uh, that gave me the opportunity to pursue some animal models uh, with uh, Jeff Mogul and spend the majority of my good uh, years in my 20s in dark rooms, uh, late at night, sometimes red lit, <laughs> while, <laughs> while I conducted studies, uh, giving uh, mice injections of things that made them hurt and watching them have sex for hours on end. And that's how I fell in love with Bob Marley. Uh, <laughs> drinking beer, watching mice have sex late at night. And you were doing those <laughs> injections into the... Yeah, so so that study was, um, it was injections. Uh, originally, it was injections into either the posterior vulva or the um, dorsal aspect of the penis for the unfortunate males. And I just want people to realize the precision that must be. Of oh, how do you give an injection into a portion of a mouse vulva? I'm sorry, I didn't even know piece. mice had vulva, and that's just silly of me. But so how tiny? No, no. How small are they? And actually, I well, I had the same question, and I was looking it up. And, and vulva is a very general term. It it's just external genitalia. So I had to like, you know, I, I was trying to match, you know, the the mouse uh, testing. You know, points whenever I was doing the sensory testing with humans, and I ended up having to like track, you know, and I, I didn't, I, I don't have a background in this stuff, so I ended up finding some articles about uh, embryological origin of uh, cell t- uh, cell uh, types because um, the vulvar vestibule is of urogenital sinus origin, and you can track that in mice up until postnatal day nine, 19, I think. Um, so I was able to like choose my test, you know, my testing site based on that. Um, Melissa has very good eyesight. Yes. Yes. Cause I was in my, I was, you know, I was young. I've always had 2020 vision, but, um, <laughs> you know, you have to be young and crazy to, to do that. It was essentially looking at tiny, uh, holes in a metal floor, looking up at mice vulvas, poking them with fawn fry hairs. Now I'm a very visual, I'm a, such a visual learner and I don't know if this is the dumbest question in the world. It's not relevant. Nobody needs to know it. I just need to picture things in my head. Do they do it like dogs? They do. Okay. Um, they, mice are, actually I like mice. Uh, they, they need a bit of foreplay. So rats will just go at it. Mice need about 20 minutes to warm up. Oh. So they'll do like this sort of foreplay, this, uh, I, I would always call it sexy, sexy, chasey, chasey. <laughs> uh, the females would sort of pace or regulate, the, control the, the pattern of mating uh, for about 30 or 40 minutes after that. So it was an hour-long session. Yeah. Wow. But in terms of um, injecting small bits, actually the male penis, the, the dorsal aspect of the penis was the most difficult because... The mice were anesthetized lightly with isoflurane, so they just inhaled a gas that made them just, you know, just unconscious for a little bit, a few minutes. And I had to actually stimulate their um, genitalia with my fingers. Nobody Uh, can see you, but I wish they could. (laughs) 
I'm moving my my fingers up and down around the the you know, and there's a big structure underneath there. Uh, but essentially, I had to get them erect uh, to inject uh, into the that part of the penis because otherwise, it was an impossible injection. So that's one oh. thing I learned in, in grad school. So this was also a clinical psych uh, degree. So I was also um, uh, seeing patients uh, in the sex and therapy couple uh, clinic that my advisor, Irv Binnick, uh, was the director of. So I was also trying to make the decisions in the mass models based on what I was hearing the patients say. Um, and so there was that. There was also a chronic pain management uh, training at the – then it was Montreal General Hospital, the pain clinic that um, – Melzac started many years ago. Um, and uh, so I, I got exposure to a lot of very strange uh, pain conditions. And I was able to observe people who were much smarter than me uh, talk about uh, how to treat them and how to sort of troubleshoot, you know, uh, characterizing their patterns across time. So I learned so much about pain from that as well. Um, then, okay, I'll, I'll hurry up. Uh, then um, I, I kind of wanted to know everything that happened just from like the tip of the skin all the way up to the brain. So, you know, in the mouse models, I, you know, gathered tissue and, you know, found innervation differences related to pain. But then I also was wondering, well, what, what is going on in the brain? And uh, I uh, secured a postdoc with Vanya Apkarian at Northwestern University, who's um, a fantastic, a brilliant researcher. And I, I don't think I've ever told him this, but I actually went there because I was going to study how he thinks. <laughs> because he's one of the few researchers I've met who's like passionate. You know, he still gets like giddy whenever he talks about his research. And his he asks questions in a completely different way. So I wanted to like figure out what his pattern was. <laughs> um, so that led me to neuroimaging. And uh, so it wasn't until... I don't know what, seven years ago that I even started thinking about things that way. So I do remember what it was like to not know the hell what, you know, what neuroimaging was even about. So that's one of the things that I, I try to keep in mind and that I was a liberal arts major. <laughs> I, but metaphor is very powerful. So I'm going to try to use lots of metaphor in this. Cool. We'll try. Yeah. Melissa is like a font of information. Yes. Um, well, I wrote, I wrote down some notes when we were doing the, the pre-show talk of um, the questions that I always find fascinating about is one of my favorites is we talk, Melissa and I, about what is normal and what is pathological around sex and intimacy. And I know there's some studies being done on um, female arousal mm -hmm. uh, issues and and I always have the question of are we are we pathologizing normal or or is there are there people with arousal disorders that really just aren't interested? Mm -hmm. um, and to tie this in with pain, uh, there are it's a very common for uh, people with chronic pain to um, have trouble uh, having. Um, normal sexual lives, sometimes because it's just physically uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, it's an emotional experience that I think can impact how um, other inf emotional information is even processed. Like, you know, there isn't a, you know, sort of a, a brain circuit just for sex or just for food pleasure. It's all sort of the sh same material. It's the same circuits. So I don't see how 
you know, one aspect of, of emotion can be just fundamentally changed by pain and the other stuff not be spared. Yeah, it's, I think that um, in some cases, I think that there must be uh, some fundamental shift in how pleasure and reward is perceived. Um, and for instance, in uh, Apkarian stuff on uh, pathological gambling, you see in chronic back, back pain patients that they are more attuned to short-term rewards rather than waiting for bigger rewards. And it's sort of like the idea of pain isn't going to get better. If you can have a little bit of relief, a little bit of pleasure right now, you'll take it. Even if it might uh, get in the way of something better later on. Yeah, because so there are a few issues here. First is like pain uh, changes how time, well, negative emotion and positive emotion change how time is perceived. That's one thing. Then there's a change, a shift in value. That's another thing. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, even some of the uh, studies that have been done on appreciation of analgesia, uh, chronic pain patients don't experience the same sort of pain relief, the, the reward signal that you see with pain relief that healthy people do. So it's this complex uh, combination of time and pleasure and um you know, in, re in relation to self. You know, much of my uh, experience, my academic experience is uh, related to female sexual functioning. Um, although, you know, with, I've worked with men as well and, and with couples. Ultimately, for women, it's a head game. Uh, and uh, what a lot of our, for instance, our psychophys studies showed is that uh, even healthy women will show variable correlations between how sort of mentally into it they are and how their bodies are responding. Uh, and that's just normal for there to be a variable correlation between that. Um, so it isn't just women with low sexual desire who have, you know, this discrepancy between genital response and, and mind. So that's one thing in terms of trying to characterize what normal is. Um, you can't just look at genitals to figure out what, what, what is normal. Um, also, I think that uh, within the context of a relationship, normal is in reference to your partner's preferences. And that could be interpreted in a number of ways. But what I'm trying to get at is something called sexual desire discrepancy, where there isn't like a population average that can tell us how much we should or shouldn't want to have sex uh, or masturbate um, or fantasize. Uh, most likely it you know, if, if you're in a relationship, it it matters in terms of whether it's different from your partners. So that makes you know, sense. As a is a, a high desire woman, there's often a discrepancy between me and my past partners. You know, where um, I, I know that typically the the example is that men typically have more desire than women. It can go both ways, and I've seen couples in therapy where it's you know the female has the higher desire or the male. And it's just whenever they aren't synced up that that creates some sort of distress. And typically, the person with the lower desire, um, the couple sort of settles on their preferences for sexual behavior. Um, so that can, so that's that's one answer in terms of of normal. Um, another thing about normal, though, is, you know, what are you desiring? <laughs> And this is something I have strong feelings about in terms of um, 
the average woman, I don't, I don't even, I'm not even going to go into how many partners the average woman has had or how many sexual partners, how many times, you know, a woman is given a blowjob or received cunnilingus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, most likely based on um, my experiences, a lot of men are not that great in bed, honestly. Uh, and unless they're being trained and, you know, work really hard at it, I don't think that it's reasonable for a woman to desire to have sex if her partner is not that great in bed. So it comes down to, to more of a technique issue. But how are we defining I, great? Right? That's a good point. Because whenever one's in love with a man, you can work around a lot of things. Uh, and that's whenever it comes, goes back to the head game. Mm. You know, if, if you're just really deeply immersed in the moment and in how your skin feels against someone else's skin. It doesn't matter if he's a, an inch or so away from, you know, the clit, you move over <laughs> and, you know, you can sort of solve your own problems in that way until the motivation to do that diminishes. Uh, it, it normally isn't a problem uh, with women after about a year of being in a exclusive relationship, you see almost a, universal drop in sexual motivation. Men's sexual motivation stays the same. And that's one of the tricky things that, that you know, a couple has to negotiate. And one of the, the author of Kosher Sex, have you read I have not. Kosher Sex? Uh, one of the most interesting things I've heard about, you know, this desire issue is that even if a woman isn't sexually interested in her partner or her husband, she often has a crush. There's someone who she's fantasizing about. So it's not as if like that energy, that erotic energy has disappeared. It's just in a different form and it's not directed at the partner. So she has a crush so, on someone who's not her partner. Yeah. Yeah. Right. For instance, there was a story where uh, um, there was a middle-aged couple and the they weren't having sex. Um, and the it turned out that the woman would go out of her way 15 minutes every Wednesday to a certain supermarket because the stock boy would compliment her fingernails. And so that was the only thing she had during the week that made her feel like a woman, to have someone admire her. And that was her sort of, you know, that erotic focus for her. So she wasn't um, active with her husband, but that energy was alive and well, and she would just, she would look forward to it so much, you know, for the rest of the week. And she would, yeah. So essentially, um, I think there's also the idea of a woman's desire can shift uh, focal points. Another example of this is Esther Perel's uh, idea of, so she wrote Mating in Captivity. Uh, I have she, that book. Yeah, read that one. really good book. Um, a little bit of, it's, if you're a traditional romantic, it can kind of take a bit to get used to the ideas. But one of them is that uh, after a child, after a woman has a child, there's often a reduction in sexual activity and her desire for her husband. But if you look at how she interacts with the child, she's bathing in sensual experiences, like the smell of her child, just gazing into the eyes. She's in love. And that energy just isn't being focused on her husband or her partner. Um, so I think also just increasing the our idea of um, what uh, desire and what sensuality 
would look like whenever it's expressed. I think that's also something that's key in defining normal. So we can gain satisfaction in other places other than just reaching orgasm during intercourse. Yes. yes and that can sure. replace our times, like the times that we would be having intercourse and having an orgasm is replaced by these other events where we're getting our satisfaction. Is that? Well, so the, the thing with the orgasm is that um, it's, uh, it's a very male centric idea of the, you know, the purpose of having sex. And if you look at even uh, literature by like David Buss, who I don't respect, <laughs> he's an evolutionary <laughs> psychologist and um, he uh, researches uh, rape, stalking, murder, and female attractiveness. So a very uh, a stand-up human being. <laughs> um, but one of the you know some of his earlier stuff, he he explored the different motivations women have for having sex, and it's not just for pleasure. It's um, sometimes for you know to to create emotional connection. Uh, sometimes it's instrumental because maybe he's, I don't know, maybe a partner is just, you know, moping and you just want to shut him up. But you see that in other species too, like female bonobos will go and, you know, whenever there are a couple of males fighting, they'll go together and sort of break them up by having sex with either male to calm them down. So it's being used as a social, sort of a social control. So this isn't just a human thing. It's uh, just a a broader experience for women. Wouldn't that make social media more interesting? <laughs> We're talking about desire and satisfaction, but what it like what about arousal? Does that come into this at all? You know, back then if a woman was able to reach uh, orgasm or she had enough arousal that they judged was enough arousal, then um, you know, she'd be considered cured. Or if a woman with vaginismus could tolerate sex, she was cured. So it was... And pleasure wasn't really a part of that. Yeah, yeah. So it was, can you biomechanically do this? You can? Okay, go forth and, and reproduce. Um, but uh, the and people have been trying really um, earnestly to figure out how those ideas fit with, you know, women that we see in the clinic. And in the past... Um, Five years, there's been a, a redefinition in the uh, DSM-5 of essentially uh, sexual desire and arousal disorders have been combined into a sexual interest and arousal disorder, uh, which isn't based on any data, uh, just expert opinion. And it's going to be changed, I'm pretty sure, in the next revision of the DSM because it, um, there are a few studies showing that using those criteria, you can't diagnose any group of sexually dysfunctional women in a reliable way. It's just, you know, the, the, the criteria, they're just too uh, constrained. Um, so in the next five years or so, they're going to be, there's going to be a redefinition of what exactly sexual desire is. So it's still up for debate. And with desire goes arousal. And that if the brain and the body don't always uh, work on the same wavelength, um, and it, you know you can become wet uh, without being mentally aroused. Um, there, it's a, it's a. I don't want to say black box. That's a bad joke. Um, but it's um, 
it's open to exploration in the next few years because arousal, yes, you can be wet, you can feel tingling, um, but you can also, for example, um, have a woman uh, exercise for a few like 20 minutes and you'll reach optimal arousal response a little bit after exercise, even if she isn't aroused. So there's sort of a a non-specific body response that we're associating with sexual arousal, which makes me doubt whether we really know what we're measuring. I've actually um, tried to incorporate some of that into the clinic because one of my questions is always, is this clinically relevant? Can I use this? Uh, But as a lady that I've worked with that, um, just a little bit of pain with um, penetration. Mm-hmm. And we've looking at some of those studies of saying, well, why don't you go work out first before mm-hmm. you try this? And it wouldn't be a long-term solution. It's like, hey, honey, let's have sex. Hold on. Going to go for a 5K run. <laughs> I'll be back. It's actually just 20 minutes on a treadmill. <laughs> so, this is in Cindy's lab. Yeah. yeah. So so she's, she's doing this as part of her program for the next two weeks is to consistently – um, get exercise before she does her, her self-stimulation or um, work with the dilators. It always comes back can... to exercise no matter what we're talking about. Doesn't it? Doesn't it, does. it? It's kind of weird. Like humans are made to move or something. Yeah, um, but but I thought that was fascinating. If, of Okay, let me. I don't understand the mechanism, but I'll trust the research and let me see what happens. And some of the more recent stuff is showing that, um, oh, what is it called? It's a type of mindfulness training has a woman um, concentrate more on uh, interoceptive uh, perception. Sensate focus? No. Mm -hmm. And whenever you match that with, like whenever you pair it with exercise, you see the biggest gains in sexual functioning. Very cool. So Sandy, was there, because you were asking about normal sex. Mm-hmm. Was there anything well, else? Uh, oh, no, go on. Well, <laughs> anything else about normal sex? That's just a question so many patients ask, right? Is yeah. this normal? Am I yeah. normal? How much, how often should I want to have sex? Um, what kind of sex should I want? What's what's it supposed to feel like? We had um, a question recently about, you know, after orgasm, I don't want anything in there anymore. And we're like, that's normal. <laughs> and But there's just such a lack of understanding in humans of what the variability is. And sometimes people will say, well, if you're not doing it like I do it, then that's wrong. And and that can confuse people. I think one of the enemies of sexuality is uh, the idea that how I do it is the way to do it. The enemies of sexuality. <laughs> yeah, I like, like in that. terms of just what, what will kill it. Uh, for instance, there was even the idea of where erogenous zones are. That's a malleable idea. There was a study many years ago of uh, women in Kenya, who had undergone uh, clitorectomies in a, during uh, the, you know, during puberty, uh, but some researchers had gotten to them uh, beforehand and uh, after, and asked about sexual arousal and sort of their erogenous zones, and for the women who had that um, that procedure, that inter, I don't know what to call it, uh, for women who had undergone that, uh, their erogenous zones shifted more to their breasts to where some of them were orgasmic from breast stimulation. Hmm. So again, it's, it's a, it's especially in women, <laughs> arousal is a really fluid idea that um, I think the, oh, and that's another thing. For instance, there was a gentleman I spoke with who, um, uh, he was a, 
somewhere mid-trunk down, he was paralyzed. Uh, and about 15 years after this had happened, after you know, a motorcycle accident, he noticed randomly that whenever he brushed his left nipple with sort of a, a motion sort of across the body toward the center, it felt really good. So after so many years, he discovered a new erogenous zone that he'd never even imagined. He'd never even thought to look. Because no one thinks to look. (laughs) Your left nipple, you know, pressing inwards. (laughs) But then that that actually awoke his sexuality because he started doing that while using his other hand to move, you know, as if he were masturbating because that made him feel normal. Mm. You know, like he, he still remembered being able to do that. And yet he was feeling the pleasure as he was making the movement. Um, so that was something that was very therapeutic for him. Uh, so, you know, I guess men and women. Well, and you see uh, the, the transgender community has Mm. to, to remap what's pleasurable when things have shifted and aren't, um, aren't where they used to be. Um, you have to learn, what feels good and what doesn't, what your preferences are, what, you know, how does, how does this reorganized body feel best? I think, so in sex therapy proper, the first thing that we do is we send people home with, with, uh, Lonnie Barback's, um, uh, pleasure for one, something like that. Uh, but we first send them home to look at their bodies, uh, naked in the mirror and, you know, of course to look at the genitals then the next time we send them home, it's just body exploration, just touching themselves, just to see what feels good. Because you'd be amazed how many people avoid that. Mm-hmm. They avoid looking at themselves maybe because they have certain feelings about how their body looks. And that translates to whether they want to touch a body part. Um, and that ends up, uh, you know, once someone discovers that they a certain body part gives them pleasure, they aren't judging it as much. Um, and once they get to the point where they are able to, you know, sometimes we do directed masturbation exercises if they need a bit of help, um, which is essentially just, hey, try this. <laughs> uh, um, and once they get to the point where they're confident enough that they can produce it in themselves and they show their partners whenever they feel ready. Which is kind of similar uh, to how we would get people in pain to start going about things, is it not? Mm-hmm. Very. That's the sensory integration kind of idea of what feels good. Can you find the things that feel good? And can you relearn pleasure in areas that were painful? Uh-huh. That, um, yeah. And then the sensate focus that you mentioned is often an important part of the integration with the partner in that uh, it's a safety valve. Uh, whenever you do it properly, um, you don't allow the couple to have sex for a certain while. They just explore each other's bodies uh, manually, and they aren't allowed to pursue anything blatantly sexual and for you know for instance a woman with vaginismus that's incredible to feel safe you know and restore intimacy in a non-threatening way absolutely with that said sometimes i've prescribed that to people uh because i know it won't work (laughs) because uh yeah the um they're based on the couple's personality there was a couple where they they like proving people wrong Okay. And uh, I knew that if I gave that exercise to them, they wouldn't be able to make it. They'd, they'd go ahead and have sex. Mm. And it worked like charm. <laughs> it is important <laughs> important to know your, your patients. Like, uh, yeah. Like those ones that if you say do 10, they'll do 400. Mm. Uh, or if you say please do 400, they might do 10. 
um, it's good to know your audience. <laughs> so is it too big of a jump to then no. discuss what happens with all of this when somebody has pain? What That's that? actually a really deep question because, so I mean, with people with pelvic pain, I've noticed uh, a pattern that you guys have probably noticed as well. Um, and for instance, even women with low de- sexual desire, they'll describe themselves as dead from the waist down. I noticed that a lot of times with pelvic pain, there'll be this mixture of hypervigilance and neglect in that they sort of block that part of their body off as something that's uh, dangerous and is causing suffering, and they will uh, stop um, masturbating. They will stop paying attention to sensations there, which obviously would impact sexual functioning. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I often will tell them, like, please keep on (laughs) masturbating, even if it's just a little bit, because you need those nerves need to, quote unquote, remember that they can transmit pleasurable information as well as as pain. The the concept I, I tell my patients a lot is do something for at least five minutes every day that feels good, that's purposefully chasing pleasure. Mm. Uh, and if you can make that be in the area, uh, as close to the area that is painful as possible, that'd be awesome. But for some, it's just try and do something that feels pleasurable every day. Just to remember, because I think they're that they forget mm-hmm. and, and that they forget how to process pleasure as something Sometimes I actually uh, suggest it as a diagnostic tool and that if there is, I've noticed that uh, some people who, or some women who, um, it, they, they have referred pain patterns, but it's intermittent. I've noticed that they're, they will often have um, very intense orgasms. And it's almost as if, the way I, I sort of think of it is, uh, you know, some of the same nerve fibers that uh, modify pain also uh, mediate pleasure. So the low tactile uh, C fibers, uh, which are thought to inhibit the nociceptive signal in the spinal cord. So, I mean, there, you know, there are these intersections of these sort of pleasure and pain pathways. And yes, I'm using pain <laughs> as another word for you. nociception. <laughs> and that's because it's a shorter word. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, but nevertheless, it's almost as if like, um, uh, I can almost, I, I sometimes read it as a, uh, an indicator that there's sub threshold sensitization whenever they can have really strong orgasms and whenever, you know, as they get more and more aroused, they need to apply less and less pressure to where by the time they actually have the orgasm, they're barely touching themselves, you know, cause well, I've just heard this and sort of worked back and forth with a, a, a wide enough range of, of women to notice that that's a thing. To be sensitivity in an already sensitive area. Yeah. So in a way, mm-hmm. it's like it makes sense. And yet uh, what that tells me is that if it's it's almost like um, it's almost like a pleasure paresthesia. Yeah, that's cool, you know? too. So in that it's a greater intensity of pleasure than they would normally feel. And they can recognize that and even describe just it, the intensity and just how their body reacts. And sometimes, you know, they'll start to feel cramps that they need to, you know, sort of um, relax into. 
but it's a different type of sensation that isn't normal, and it's a different type of pleasure that isn't normal. And, you know, I hear that type of language, and I, I hear that those nerves are not transmitting information the way that they normally would. And the, and the spinal cord could amplify it, and the brain could over-attend it could be any number of things going on. It's complex, isn't mm-hmm. it? But, it, but I mean, t- most likely for something like that, I wouldn't think that there'd be, and this is a bias, I don't think that that would be as much brain-mediated as peripherally mediated. And I know that, that gets, people could take me to task for that. But well, I don't, I don't know we'd need studies. I think so, too. <laughs> We'll get right on that. Get right on that. <laughs> um, so, so, Melissa, you said you like to explain, to make complex ideas simple for people to understand. Yes. So, yes. can you explain what you were just talking about with respect to nociception or the not the mm-hmm. little argument you guys just had, but... <laughs> <laughs> Where I was punching her in the arm for calling it a pain signal. Yeah. By the way, pain researchers call it pain because it's shorter. Um, so the whole thing with the pain and nociception is that uh, a, a noxious signal doesn't really produce anything like pain until it becomes uh, a perception in the brain. And people often, um, just so for the sake of simplicity or sometimes because they learned it this way, will call nociceptors pain receptors. Um, and, you know, part of that is a bit of uh, wanting to make things simple. Some of it might be ignorance, etc. Um, there are some people who are pretty uh, militaristic about that right now in terms of uh, proper wording. But um, essentially just the idea that uh, there can be a nociceptive signal uh, transmitted from the nerve through the spinal cord up to the brain, and it doesn't necessarily need to be perceived. And there are a number of you know, mechanisms in the brain that determine whether it's perceived. And this is why things like distraction work so well. You know, in a sort of simplistic way of explaining this is the gate theory, Melzack and Wall's gate theory, where there are um, different uh, inhibitory factors in the spinal cord and in the brain that determine whether or not a perception will emerge from nociception. So nociception occurs all the time. Right now I've shifted in my seat several times and that's because of my nociceptors. They're telling me that it's not good to, you know, sit in a certain way that'll give me something like bed sores. (laughs) On a wobbly (laughs) barstool. Exactly. Um, And uh, so we do many things because we, you know, our our nociceptors uh, are essentially... I mean, and it even goes deeper than that, though. Uh, For instance, there's some evidence that nociception also can be generalized to the space around our bodies. Uh, So, for instance, Gian Domenico Ianetti's work is a beautiful example of this. Um, And uh, what he essentially shows is that the same noxious stimulus, which is a a laser uh, that's shown onto the, the top of the hand, we, as the hand moves toward the body and specifically toward the head, uh, it will become painful at a certain point. The same stimulus essentially becomes painful just uh, by virtue of its proximity from the head. And the idea is that there is a 
sort of an aura of space around our bodies that we use to encode what is safe and what is threatening. So people with high anxiety will have larger sort of peripersonal spaces than people with lower anxiety, meaning that they have a, a more generalized definition of what could be threatening. Uh, and once you enter that peripersonal space, a potential threat becomes uh, you know, much more acute more quickly. And the idea is essentially that um, nociception is a, it's a type of sensation that relates specifically to the surface of the body and that it relates not only to what happens outside of the surface of the body, but also what contacts it. So the, the skin are, you know, the sort of the, the boundaries of our skin are very important in terms of uh, determining what is threatening and what isn't. And we have to have a, a, a better understanding of, um, essentially, if you have a good idea of where the boundaries of your body are, you have a good idea of what is likely more threatening and what is less threatening. And things like pain sort of uh, dissolve that sense of body, body boundary. Where, you know, if you have like painful, like if uh, you have a broken arm or something, you can't really feel where, oh yes, or you have a horrible bruise like that. It's a burn. Oh, burn, yes, burns work well. Um, you can't really feel where your body begins and where the space around it ends. So this, I think this is really cool. Laura, do you find that, that the people that you work with with pelvic pain uh, protect more <laughs> oh, because because for intimacy and intercourse it's penetrative most of the time um, and that's that's beyond just the surface of your skin that's kind of entering into the the center of self yes and I totally agree and the nice thing is that uh, so the you know Ian Eddy has suggested that the head is this very salient uh, area of protection I think that the pelvis is also there's probably an aura around the pelvis that uh, determines safety or non-safety there's a study where someone tried to uh, extend the findings of Ianetti, but they used the feet and they didn't find anything shockingly <laughs> because um the you know yes so we don't have an aura around our feet that tells us whether something is dangerous or not versus the 2001 Lankveld study shows that in healthy women and women with vaginismus whenever they see some sort of frightening uh, visual stimuli like Cujo the movie mm -hmm. a, a rabid dog was that the movie they uh, showed it was wasn't it yeah, yeah I knew it was yeah, a horror movie I just couldn't remember which exactly. movie so that's a normal response to threat mm -hmm. whenever your legs are wide opening and you know you're watching a movie <laughs> <laughs> about a rabid dog as you do as now you in, do. now in but all these movie the, theaters the that are reclined the ventral aspect of the body you know yeah. that's a that's well, that's, you'd want to protect it and ball up absolutely like and you don't really do. want to protect your feet well i'd kick that at the dog and you know oh. <laughs> i love dogs you but but feet. i could lose a foot yeah you could but you don't have that like emotional connection protection with your feet uh, we could get really funky and say i wonder if you're a professional footballer would you True. have a larger protection of your feet than if you were not? Or you could ask a surgeon in their hands. Right? Mm. Or a manual therapist. Oh, yeah. True. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that'd be cool. But I I think, and I have absolutely no proof for it, that that it's um, that we protect our genitals a lot. 
more than we protect a lot of other parts of us. And it makes sense from a biological basis. Mm-hmm. We need to stay alive, but we also are supposed to breed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think the genitals are at least as important as the head. <laughs> <laughs> Bare minimum. The, the rest of the story is um, you have a nociceptive signal. What determines whether or not it will become pain? Um, I was actually just having a conversation uh, with someone about this the other day. There are, for instance, um, you could change pain by changing the nociceptive signal and seeing if that impacts the pain perception, or you could change, you know, brain-related, just sort of how it's encoded or how it's uh, appraised. But for example, um, uh, Ted Price has recently done some work showing that um, there's he has a treatment so he's a ted price is a molecular uh, pain researcher uh, who i met from mcgill who has just recently found a novel uh, pathway that uh, contributes to peripheral sensitization Hmm. so he's a super super smart guy Um, but he also has developed this cream uh, called ted's uh, pain cream that is based on a couple of his studies that show that the combination of resveratrol, which normally isn't very bioavailable, whenever you add it with salicylic acid, it profoundly enhances the bioavailability. And that combination, when uh, injected into skin or even you know, put across the surface of the skin topically, uh, inhibits the two pathways that uh, either one would be required to induce peripheral sensitization. So even if you have inflammation, ongoing inflammation, it, this doesn't impact that. It impacts the excitability of that first nociceptor. Very cool. Can we put the study in the show notes? Because I want to read it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, and, you know, he, he correlates it with interleukin-6 and mechanical allodynia in, in rodents. Um, but this is also the cool thing is it's available <laughs> because he, he can't afford a, you know, no one can afford a clinical trial, but, uh, it's something you can buy from his website. Uh, so there's a plug for that. Ted, actually, I Ted's pain it. cream. That just sounds like a joke. I know. No, it's, it's um, and I think it's tedsbrainscience.org. There's a plug there. Uh, but seriously, this is like, um, this is something where, um, I've, I've used this cream and I've given it to other pain researchers, like molecular pain researchers who are like, that cream is amazing. <laughs> but but that's a, it's a very specific mechanism. And if that mechanism isn't engaged in a, a nociceptive response, then it won't do anything. But for instance, I've suggested it to patients before as a diagnostic way of seeing if that's a factor at all. And not harmful um, if it, it just won't work. Yeah. And the, yeah, so the idea is that you know, the the excitability of that first neuron, if you sort of control that, you won't get the subsequent uh, amplification of the pain, pain, pain signal. I'm going to say it again, pain. The nociceptive signal uh, within the spinal cord. Um, so there are, yeah, there are a number of, um, I mean, that's probably the most efficient way to reduce the actual nociceptive a signal from the periphery. Uh, otherwise, um, I mean, we could get into a lot of detail. But often, I, I, you know, will uh, suggest things like that to patients as experiments that they can do on themselves to try to decipher 
what is and isn't a mechanism. So like capsaicin, if you mix it with lidocaine and are like a human being and don't just tell someone to put burning stuff on their bodies, you mix it with lidocaine, you know, that can be a uh, sort of a little uh, experiment in terms of whether uh, trp one receptors, the capsaicin receptor, uh, are involved in someone's pain. And the capsaicin receptors often localized on uh, neurons very near it's called the PTRX3 receptor, and it mediates the shift from non-painful to painful pressure. Uh, and the TRPV1, the capsaicin receptor, is weird because it can actually modulate the excitability of receptors directly around it. So that's you know, essentially not only is the same nociceptor transmitting both heat pain and mechanical pain, but you can, by applying capsaicin to a point where the nociceptor can no longer transmit any information. It's called, it's hyperpolarized. Uh, you can block that and see if anything remains. So you're sort of like taking out one part of the nociceptive pathway to see how important it is. How does, which I think is what you, I think what you were explaining, um, like if somebody uses lignocaine and they have like the skin sensitivity right inside the vestibule you know like there's right at the vestibule but then right inside yeah, um, yeah. and that's like the barrier to intercourse there's no pain deep inside muscles can relax even though they want to protect because of the pain um, if you find that these creams help is that then what you just continually get them to do that's a good question um, because it depends on how long they've had the pain. Uh, so, for instance, I had an email recently from someone, a woman who was preparing to get married in a month and she was having pain. In <laughs> uh, that sort of case where you have a clear, you know, it hasn't been that long for um, sort of chroni chronification to take place, it, there still must be a peripheral signal. Mm -hmm. That would be a good way to sort of block out, you know, that, that, um, you know, the, the transduction, the detection of that, whatever it is that's causing pain. One of the easiest ways that I, I like to explain um, nociception is I actually think that it's like a learning response. And I think it's a really fantastic learning response in that whenever pain becomes chronic, your body is, yeah, we call it pathological because it hurts, but your body's working beautifully. Your nociceptors are faithfully, you know, transmitting information that there's something potentially wrong here. Your spinal cord is amping it up because it's an important signal. Your brain is paying attention, uh, paying a ton of attention, and there's, you know, emotional arousal involved that uh, creates a more strongly encoded emotional memory. Everything is working beautifully. Um, it just never returns to baseline in some people. Uh, and... You know, once it gets past a certain point, you know, the you don't need a peripheral source of, of input anymore. So that's, so you know, whenever the the spinal cord um, neurons start to transmit information without any peripheral input, that's the first point that pain becomes independent of the environment around us. It becomes it runs a, itself exactly, uh, and I think that. One of the misconceptions that is very confusing in the pain literature is that 
we have sort of assume it's like this one-way direction, like it, it becomes chronic. And if you have any fl- inflammation, it means that there you know, isn't anything spinal or there isn't anything in the brain. There's no reason, first of all, um, central sensitization of, of spinal cord uh, interneurons, it isn't like this eternal flame. <laughs> you know, once it started, it, it never stops and you can find it in any chronic pain population ever. That's not true because Rob Giroux has done a, a few studies that are, that are unfortunately ignored uh, showing that you need to rekindle uh, this sort of the peripheral input to sustain the chronic, um, you know, the, the central sensitized neurons, that response. So it doesn't just continually, I don't know, it's like it, 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 it be able to continue it or to, to rekindle that through a whole lot of different ways though, mm-hmm. through expectations and beliefs and could be top down rekindling. It doesn't have to be bottom up rekindling. I think Mm-hmm. Good. Qu- okay, so this this gets to, <laughs> Laurie, we're getting we're this getting this gets to a point where I I'm sensitive about this, <laughs> in that there's a difference between spinal cord mediated central sensitization, which is something that only happens in spinal cord neurons. Right. That's been shown from 1983. It has three properties. You have those neurons respond with less information. They respond in a larger way and they don't need the peripheral input to continue to transmit that information. All of those three together mean that the spinal cord interneuron is is centrally sensitized. You can have amplified responses in other parts of the central nervous system, but they are not central sensitization proper. And people use this term in a number of different ways to describe various levels of hypersensitivity. And I think it's a mistake because that mechanism is so beautifully specific. You're losing all of that specificity. Could it? Because I can't do a research study if I assume that any neuron in the brain is equivalent to any neuron in the spinal cord. And that, you know, catastrophizing plus you know, spinal cord, that, that it's just like this mishmash of stuff. You, you mix and match uh, uh, symptoms throughout the body and you get this same centralized state. That's like it's baking. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, but there are some people who, who believe that, who believe that if you have any pain that are in, you know, separate uh, dermatomes that, you know, don't really make sense. They're not right beside each other. And if someone's catastrophizing a lot, clearly they have central sensitization and they might even have central sensitivity syndrome, which Just doesn't thought, exist. Right. And I thought that the word central sensitization was getting kind of left behind in um, conversations and more of like central pain states. And I am guilty of not distinguishing between the spinal cord and the brain when I talk about that. Um, so I love that point. It's um, hard to, but also even if you're and a really studious reader, it's hard to differentiate these things because there are people who should know better who are writing review papers that do not properly differentiate these things. But it's and so the diagram in my head, I'm an exceptionally visual person with all of this. The diagram in my head is is of um, descending inhibition or descending facilitation. And that's what kind of what I was thinking is can those mechanisms um amplify or affect the dorsal horn changes yes they can so in normal states they inhibit and in pathological states 
uh, things inhibit their ability to inhibit. Right. So there's some disinhibition and... And... Yes. So, yes. I'm tossing my little <laughs> light things. I'm so excited over here. Um, these are the kinds of conversations I love of, of how do we know? Now, is it clinically relevant? I don't know. But it's fascinating of what might be going on inside the human that hurts and what could we maybe do about it? The thing that I've, I've been more keen on recently is thinking of there could be, let's say you have 100% of someone's pain. And you have it split into, let's say, for the sake of argument, four components. So there's peripheral information. There is, <laughs> we're using the, the, the glow sticks here to help make this more visual. You have the peripheral information you have. <laughs> but I can't see final... it. <laughs> it's okay. All right, there we go. Yep, you have the, glow sticks. You have okay. the peripheral information. You have the spinal ascending. Then you have the spinal descending. And then you have the brain. And... If you think of, you know, those four components making up 100% of someone's pain, I think that at any one point, there can be various percentages of their pain that are accounted for by each of those components. So I don't think it's always just inflammation. I don't think it's always just, uh, you know, inflammation plus descending and, and central sensitization. I think that especially people with visceral pain, um, but also people who've had uh, somatic pain or, you know, skin, muscle, bone pain for a period of time have a, a independent brain component because it's emotionally learned at that point. And you don't need, you know, that's like saying that you need to have someone kiss you to remember your first kiss. That's an emotional memory. No, you don't need that. You can remember it very well. You remember exactly where you were. You remember what the smell was like. Um, that, that memory is working perfectly fine. Yep, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And most likely, if you have that thought, he did. <laughs> oh no, me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but in that way, you can start to play around with it. In that, you know, by blocking different parts of the peripheral input, does that make any difference to the overall perception? Or if you know someone. Uh, has a partial response. Uh, for instance, if someone's pain, has, you know, they have a reduction of two points with physical therapy, but it goes back after two days. Oh, no, it didn't work. No, actually, it did work. That works beautifully. That means two out of, out of your pain, two points out of your pain is muscularly, muscularly uh, maintained. And if you keep on writing that, you can reduce that component of the whole and then work on what's left over. Uh, also, for instance, I'm doing a study with a urologist where we look at uh, uh, spermatic cord blocks for uh, men with um, uh, with chronic uh, scrotal content pain. And uh, the guys who don't respond to the surgery, uh, so essentially, like, you know, you take a group of guys, they all respond to the block. They have no pain for a while. Uh, then whenever he's trying to decide who to use for surgery there are only about half of these patients who end up responding well to the surgery, and yet everyone responds to the block. And what I found is that people who, men who respond to the block for 12 hours or less are far less likely to respond to the surgery. And if you think about what that means, you've stopped a peripheral source of pain for a while, and yet there's still probably, I mean, to me it suggests there's still a spinal cord sort you know sort of a loop that's so strongly embedded it's still 
perpetuating this signal without the additional peripheral input. So, for instance, central sensitization seems to always require peripheral input, but even if you remove the peripheral input, it takes a while for that uh, that centralized response to sort of diminish, to, to fade away. Because you can take the peripheral input away, and you, that's one of the definitions of it. So you need a little bit of a break um, to be able to you know, see if a, a peripheral um, intervention has worked. Yeah, so I'm not, not sure where that was going. No, but it's fascinating. <laughs> and I, I took a little video of the four rings while she was talking, and I airdropped it too, Laurie, so you'll have that. Cool. I'll have to, yes, I will have to find that. Well, um, we'll have you. Now, I don't remember where I was just thinking. I was so in, I was just listening and so into it that now I went, oh, yeah, where were, where are we going? Something I, I would like to sort of bring it around to is um, uh, an idea that I'm really uh, in love with right now uh, about visceral pain. So um, in the classic, uh, so in terms of pain as an emotional memory, um there are some people, some practitioners, and some patients that are uncomfortable with this idea because it seem it sounds more like oh that it's in your head. Um, at least that's how it's uh, it can be interpreted. But uh, it's a natural consequence of a very salient event uh, being important enough to draw your attention. But also, you know, whenever you're in pain, you have a little bit of sympathetic arousal, and it doesn't feel good. And those are all good things whenever you're trying to make an emotional memory. So if you want to make the perf perfect emotional memory, fear memories are always stronger than, unfortunately, positive memories. So you have the negative affect, and then you need norepinephrine to really amp that up. And cortisol is sort of the intermediary where um, essentially a bit of a stress response is good, but ultimately it's the norepinephrine uh, that uh, makes the memory the strongest. And you can make any memory strong if you add a little bit of negative affect and a little bit of uh, stress response. Uh, this can also work with positive. So, for example, there was a study where um, my old advisor, Cindy, did this. If you go on a roller coaster with someone, you know, you, you get that stress response, the good stress response. You find them more attractive after, like the person you're sitting by, you find them more attractive after than before. And it's their stimulus value is enhanced because they're associated with that visceral response. Yeah. That, uh, sympathetic arousal. So you remember, if you want to remember anything, so dating tips by Melissa Farmer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go skydiving together. You'll fall in love. <laughs> um, but, but something like visceral pain does this naturally in that, uh, some of the classic descriptions of visceral pain by Fernando Severo, who's just a, you know, one of the, old school uh, pain physiologists um, who always wears this like sweater over his shoulders. It's kind of obnoxious. It's kind of, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't like that, but um, he, I'm but sure he won't his, listen to the podcast. I'm sure so he it's won't. Fine. No, it's just, you know, you're so full of yourself. Come on, take that off. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he, in his older work, he always describes visual pain as necessarily including negative affect and also a little bit of a stress response in that he says almost as, as if like those are components of visceral pain. 
And if those are components of visceral pain, first of all, they are more likely to encode visceral pain as a strong emotional memory because that's the, you know your magical ingredients for an emotional memory right there. Um, and I think that that means that emotional. I think that that means that visceral pain becomes an emotional memory more quickly than other types of memory. But technically, that also means if if those components are always there with visceral pain, the experience can be diminished if you target any of those three. If you target, you know, if you relax someone, if you reduce their negative affect, um, I think that those should be able to diminish that perception of visual or visceral pain, even independent of reducing that diffuse sensory experience. Are you thinking that would be a, a underpinning theory of why manual therapy and some of the visceral mobe techniques work? It's a nice environment with the person you trust rubbing your belly. It yes. feels good. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. No, I, I, I do because I also think that, um, you know, Ian Eddy's work showed us that uh, the space around us is emotional. You know, if, if anxiety modulates how we perceive nociceptive information around our body, it is therefore, those are therefore a cognitive, emotional, spatial memories of pain. And I think that's why, that's why I'm pretty into PT. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it is, I think, capturing the entire uh, memory trace of the pain uh, more effectively <laughs> You're like a, hip, a hippie mama. She's <laughs> making me laugh. But as a, <laughs> sorry. But essentially, yeah. So so, but but thinking about that, whenever you are actually working with someone and they're experiencing the pain and they're they're modulating their emotions, you know, based on your feedback, and they're realizing that they can move their bodies in ways that they didn't know that they could, you are. Uh, reconsolidating. You're reactivating and reconsolidating that emotional memory. And that is the most effective thing you could do to uh, treat someone's chronic pain. Because if it's to the point where it's an emotional memory, fortunately, we know uh, from the learning and memory field that emotional memories can be fundamentally changed whenever they're re-evoked and whenever... um, there are a couple of uh, quirks to this. Ideally, whenever they're revoked and novel information is inserted there that defies expectations because that makes the situation more salient, which makes the brain... Pay attention. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah. the expectation work. I love the expectation stuff. Which is why is so, cool. with so many physios doing so many different things, all of them are still working because it's all still addressing the emotional side. doesn't matter what they're doing. It's well, a, a wide not, buffet not that it, of possibilities. Yeah. Not that it doesn't but we, matter. But we, it, it does open up a lot of possibilities, and I think the strongest would be the one the person likes. Yes. And it also speaks to the, the and power of the relationship between the, you know, the, the practitioner and the patient because you're more likely to be willing to go there emotionally with someone that you trust. Um, so I think that, you know, being with someone in an environment where you feel safe enough to to go there will make it more likely that you can, you know, accurately and, and fully evoke that memory to be able to change it. So, you know, some of these, uh, some of the critiques about the, you know, sort of fluffy biopsychosocial thing where, oh, you know, whatever makes the patient feel better, that's what we'll do. There's actually something to it in that if someone feels emotionally safe enough to 
face something that makes them suffer 24 hours a day, makes them willing to consider that that might not be their destiny, that they can do something about that. That's really powerful. Um, and I think that that's, for instance, in psychotherapy, if someone has PTSD, you want them to be with a psychologist who they feel they can trust, who they feel comfortable with. You create a, a plan on what you'll do in case anything happens to where whenever they begin that, they know that it will end well. Regardless of what happens, it'll end well. I think it's what we try and do in therapy if you're if you're paying attention um, too. That's really cool. So this was convenient because the last question I wrote down in my notes was, so Melissa, what are you passionate about now and what do you want to study? And she already answered it. Yeah, I'm... I'm really getting into the the multidimensional emotional memory stuff. <laughs> and that it's only been the past uh, year or so that I've realized that the spatial component must be emotional as well, which, you know, there are therapies like uh, Peter O'Sullivan's cognitive, cognitive functional therapy that very naturally bring in the movement, you know, uh, sort of merges the movement with the... Um, challenging of the beliefs mm-hmm. uh, in a more formal way. Uh, but I think that uh, PTs do that just naturally. Um, and yeah, it, it's a, I think PTs are acting like both PTs and psychologists and perhaps um, confessors, <laughs> a lot of different hats. Uh, but I think that of all the different uh people who deal with pain that I've, I've, you know, spoken in front of or that I've talked to, uh, PTs have the, the most, um, insight into what is coming out in the literature. Like they're just sort of discovering it on their own. So the, that's one of the reasons why I really respect you and you. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but seriously, I mean, it's it's something to it's it's one thing to you know reach that after tons of years of research, but if you figure it out on your own just from trial and error, and you just notice what works, and you notice that these you know a certain pattern of things seem to work, that's that's uh, that is research. That is the most noble type of research. Oh, see, this is good, Laurie. We're getting some massive feel-goods, which <laughs> is an emotional is. memory, which will yeah, help us. Exactly. And I'm trying to embed myself in your She's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so does that then, does that, the emotional, your, pa- your kind of newfound passion, um, thank you, Sandy, you look really good. <laughs> um, does that tie in with the multimodal neuroimaging it can. Or is that um, totally different? Because remember, no, I still don't no. really get that. Uh, it's all connected. It's all connected, man. Um, the, there have, so in my neuroimaging stuff, I've, uh, in the MAP study, uh, which is a, a, a U.S. government-funded study on uh, chronic pelvic pain patients uh, using neuroimaging, inflammatory biomarkers, and just uh, really intense clinical phenotyping approaches. One of the things that I've been doing in that is uh, I was um, I've been doing the diffusion tensor imaging uh, analyses uh, for that that neuroimaging data, and what that means is essentially there's a type of scanning that you can do 
that uh, detects where water flows, the direction that water flows. So for any single point in space, it calculates the probability that water is going in any of 256 directions. <laughs> and you can change it, but, you know, just to, you know, really exact uh, index of where water is flowing. And water only flows directionally along axons. If it's inside of a neuron, it just sort of spins around on itself. It has, um, you know, it doesn't go anywhere. So it's used to infer where axon tracks are, essentially the hardwiring that takes information from one neuron to another. But they, you know, occur in these big bundles. And the coolest finding from that work uh, is that um, in a part of the brain uh, where essentially um, perception of, uh, I mean, previous neuroimaging studies suggest that uh, it's where uh, pelvic floor muscle contractions are perceived, but also very subtle changes in posture, like um, voluntary uh, postural movements. Uh, whenever you look at axons uh, in that area, they have, they essentially have increased um, directionalness. Essentially, they, they, what's the best way to say it? These, these hard wiring sort of tracks, axonal tracks, are becoming stronger. They're becoming more um, resilient. They are, it's the opposite of breaking down. And uh, I wish I could say something more clear than that, but it's actually really that vague. <laughs> I mean, it, it correlates with myelination, uh, but um, normally in this type of study, you can't really say exactly what causes it, except this particular tract that this uh, white matter, these white matter changes were found in is the corticospinal tract. And there was a study a few years ago that showed that uh, only in the corticospinal tract, if you block myelination, a mouse cannot learn complex motor behavior. It will extinguish the motor behavior that they've learned. So that's a direct relationship between the amount of um, sort of integrity of those axonal tracks and complex motor learning, which, you know, whenever you consider that, uh, you know, those changes are occurring in a place related to pelvic movement, uh, it seems to me like a very reasonable uh, interpretation of this is that People with urological chronic pelvic pain, so urological pelvic pain, are learning to move their pelvises and sort of adjust their postures in a way that's as complex as, for instance, playing a piano or juggling or a male songbird learning to sing his song every every year to like attract the best females. Like these are these changes only occur with like quite complex motor learning. Um, so what are they learning whenever you're moving around your hips and you have pain? You're probably learning how to avoid having pain. Like yeah. maybe you're trying to find the Better. optimal. Something different. Yeah. Um, but also there are just some natural, I mean, you know, if you look at Paul Hodges' work, there are also some natural adaptations in terms of how uh, these, uh, how, how muscle groups naturally respond to pain over time and how they adjust for one another's uh, movement. And it's, it's, it's like the first little sort of tidbit in something that I think is going to yield a lot of information about 
a certain brain area and a certain brain area actually changing how a person moves because they're in pain. And that's the really profound thing in that if you are moving a fundamentally different way whenever you're in pain and you're sensing things differently, you know, because you have the altered nociceptive input, you're interacting with the world, the environment in a, in a way that is not normal. You know, if you watch someone in pain, they sort of have this, you know, sort of strained, they move around their pain. It's not a natural, uh, it's not a natural track of movement. Um, and if you are living in a world where you are, it's almost as if you have different physical laws. Is it reversible? I think most likely, yes. Uh, because we see that uh, gray matter changes and functional changes are reversible within six months after uh, successful treatment uh, for chronic back pain patients, um, I think that that's one indicator. But also the brain is beautifully plastic and that if it is going to the effort <laughs> to adapt and reorganize this much to pain, it is, you know, the brain doesn't remember what your body was like 10 years ago, unfortunately. <laughs> I wish. It doesn't remember what your body was like 10 years ago. It remembers what it was like yesterday, a month ago. That's the time scale that you're working with. And so if you change, if you, you know, get to a point where you're perceiving things differently, you're moving differently, within a certain span of time, your brain is going to adjust to that. And it can adjust to dysfunction just as easily as it can adjust to function. And we don't have a, a, a limit to that. It's not like a garage door opener that's going to wear out. And your warranty's I, out and you're done. There's nothing. I, neuroplasticity is, it's, it is one of the, the safest biological bets you could make. <laughs> In that, um, you know, I think that bringing up exercise again, if, if you want to optimize the the, this sort of response, exercise and actually lithium, low-dose lithium, increases neurogenesis in the hippocampus, which would be one of the few things you can do to sort of help optimize, you know, the neuroplasticity of your of your brain, um, just because it'll make you learn better. Um, so yeah, exercise. So we don't have we don't have access to lithium, but we have access to exercise. <laughs> But, but so the hippocampus is weird. So 700 neurons every day are born in the hippocampus. There isn't anywhere else in the brain that has that type of growth. Uh, it takes much longer in other areas of the brain. So it's a, but it's also very sensitive to stress. That's where stress-induced uh, apoptosis or cell death occurs. Um, that's where estrogen protects you know, those cells from becoming uh, uh, killed, murdered by themselves. Um, so it, the hippocampus is a very precious uh, piece of neural real estate um, that you can impact with exercise and lithium. <laughs> uh, but, but essentially, um, I guess what I'm saying is that that you know, looking over that study and then learning some of the things I've learned in the past year uh, make me realize that in terms of interventions, space, how the body moves in space is an interventional target that needs to be, for optimal response, it needs to be put into the equation. Yay. But it doesn't, but it's it's interacting with emotion and with, you know, cognitive expectations. So, which is exactly what PTs do. Very cool. And um, I, I, I see where my question 
really didn't tie it in, but what a good jump you made. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I think that, you know, you, you, you talk about how, you know, your exercise is, is something that, you know, you've, especially in your research, you know, you're, you're passionate about it. You know that there's something there. And I think it's taken us a while to like figure out what exactly it's doing. That's, you know, in a way you're, you've discovered what uh, the neuroscientists are just now sort of figuring out. If uh, the listener wants to know some uh, quality people to read, you know, who can you trust? Take these names down. First name is Clifford Wolf. If you're interested in spinal cord central sensitization. And if you read something that counters what he says, seriously question it. And I'm not saying that he's God, I'm not saying he's perfect, but I'm saying that he's a conservative British man who discovered the concept and he, he is pretty realistic about, uh, you know, how it can be applied. Um, also, uh, Apkarian, Vanya Apkarian, some of his stuff is pretty dense. Uh, but there's a 2016 um, review paper that I can send, uh, you know, if you want to download that, that uh, really nicely uh, explores some of the past 15 years of his work. Um, if you're interested in psychophys, Rick Gracely, Richard Gracely, is excellent. If you're interested in uh, uh, sort of the cognitive aspects of pain, um, I think that... Uh, Probably. You can email them to me, and I'll put them all in the show notes anyway. Um, also, someone else I would not trust, and I'm <laughs> going to go ahead and say it, I would not trust um, the work of uh, Daniel Claw. And I know I'm being very... I'm, I know how inappropriate this is to say it. I know that he has validated fibromyalgia in a really important way. Uh, but uh, his ideas on pain comorbidity are severely misguided and they're dangerous. Um, I also think that Eunice, who d wrote the original stuff on the central sensitivity syndrome concept, mm -hmm. uh, fundamentally misinterpreted the ideas of al allodynia and hyperalgesia, and his work is severely misguided. Uh, and it is not a mix and match within the central nervous system. Cells do different things, and, and that's a, a good thing. People to look out for if you're interested in more crazy hardcore stuff is Simon Beggs, uh, who will be at IASP. He's going to be talking about pain memory. Um, also, uh, Mike Costigan is brilliant. So I, I would throw out Pub, those names. PubMed searches. Yes. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, Apcarian will be at the San Diego Pain Summit in 2018. Um I'm looking forward to that because I've only heard him speak for about two seconds and it was He's a He's a very lucid speaker and he has data on prediction of placebo response, a priori placebo response using both brain measures and independent questionnaire measures. So uh, if any, there's some really interesting work that his lab is doing on placebo response that, um, you know, a lot of the conversations nowadays are well, anything you want can be placebo. No, yeah. actually, you know, there are some very distinct biological signatures about ways that you can go about that. Cool. Very cool. Thanks. So the, it'll be an awesome talk. Thanks, Lori. It's always fun to pin Melissa down and have a chance to talk to her. So I know. Thank I you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.